Hello and welcome to this instalment of the A to Z of Tech podcast. As always, it's myself, Louise, and my colleague, Hugo, leading you through some juicy tech nuggets. And today we have a bumper episode for you. You may have noticed that in some of our previous pod episodes, we've done some jargon busting. So to continue this theme, this episode of the podcast is J for jargon. Well, we say jargon, but really it's a kind of talking tech glossary, if you will. The real aim here is to explain and decrypt a set of tech terms which people find mystifying or inaccessible. Some, as you hear, are narrow, others broad. Today, we'll be taking you through a top 10 of terms and acronyms and bringing them to life with the help of some of our colleagues from here at PwC, as well as some special guests. So Hugo, why are we actually doing this? First, because if you're tuned into this podcast, you're probably already curious about new technologies. So we want to satisfy your hunger. But more seriously as well, I think, the future of our new digital culture really depends on how well we learn to use the technologies that can enhance, but also complicate our lives. There isn't really any escaping it. And so we believe that we need to understand some of the emerging themes in tech, basically some of the building blocks, so we can understand technology a bit more coherently. And as George Bernard Shaw said, all professions are a conspiracy against the layman. Tech jargon shouldn't really belong to a tech elite. This is a language that needs to become part of a common vocabulary. So let's try and shed some daylight on the magic. So don't worry, this episode won't be Hugo and I reciting a thesaurus, you'll be glad to know. What we did do is conduct a poll to come up with quite a varied list of words, phrases and acronyms, and then went through what can best be described as a boaty McBoatface judging process and whittled these down to a top 10. Then we selected some very smart people, some PwC colleagues, some special guests to talk about each one as pithily as they can in two minutes. So let's bring on our expert talking heads. So kicking things off first, we have Kirsten Ward from PwC's cyber team explaining our first phrase, the acronym OSINT. OSINT, first of all, stands for Open Source Intelligence. And it covers anything obtained from open sources from information in the media. So that's newspapers, radio, television, to professional and academic records, and even public data. So government reports, public hearings, speeches. As with many terms in my field, which is threat intelligence, OSINT has a military background and OSINT sits alongside other forms of intelligence. These include HUMINT, which stands for human intelligence, whether this is uncovered covertly or not. SIGINT, which stands for signals intelligence, and this is from communications like phone calls. Then we have GEOINT. I hope I'm saying that right, which stands for geospatial intelligence. So that's intelligence derived from geospatial imagery. There are many applications of OSINT, from using a search engine to find the menu at a restaurant, to asking a question on a forum like, is this phone call a scam? It's also particularly important in threat intelligence on both the attacker and defender side. Most cyber attacks start with the reconnaissance phase. This is where threat actors try to find as much information as possible on a target passively. Threat actors can use OSINT to identify employees at a victim company, find pictures of employees' lanyards on social media, identify technologies the company uses from job adverts, and they might seek to discover vulnerabilities in their public-facing infrastructure. All of these can help them to carry out an attack with a higher chance of success. Then, on the defender side, we use OSINT to track and challenge threat actors. 
We use online multi-antivirus scanners to find malware samples that we can analyze and then craft indicators to better protect against this activity. We track threat actors' infrastructure through pivoting over domains and IP addresses, and then companies can stop traffic to any known malicious domains and IP addresses. Finally, when governments manage to identify the real identity of threat actors, they're able to indict the criminals. As threat actors evolve to try and hide their digital footprint, we as investigators find new and innovative methods to better track them. In particular, one of the things we have to be careful about is social media. For example, does your social media platform really need to be public? Does everyone in the world need to know where you went last night? And then thinking about it from the threat actor point of view, how could they use that information? For example, if you got an email saying, oh, I hope you enjoyed your dinner last night. Why don't you check out this other restaurant that we have? With an attachment, you might be more likely to click on that because it relates to something that actually happened, but is just information that you can easily find online. Thank you, Kirsten. Now we have David Cannings, who is helping us to understand the mysterious zero day. A zero day is a flaw in a piece of computer software that hasn't been fixed yet. So we'd say it hasn't been patched. The term is often associated with a way of making your computer, your phone or your tablet do something that it's not meant to do. And we must remember the software on our computers is written by people. It's written by humans. And humans do unfortunately make mistakes. Some of these mistakes mean your software crashes or it runs slowly. It's not very easy to use. But some mistakes introduce security problems, which in the worst case could lead to someone else having control of your computer. This is important because zero days can help criminal groups or nation states to conduct attacks such as espionage or ransomware. And these can lead to real world impacts ranging from financial loss to strategic challenges for a company. Zero days really interest me because that's where I started my career many years ago. I researched software security and worked with big technical companies to help fix them and ultimately keep society safe. In some ways, the problems that zero days cause companies, such as PwC's clients, are the same today as they were 10 years ago because the state of the art in this area is constantly evolving. Something really interesting that's happened in the last few years is a very active market for zero days has emerged. There's some respected and some less reputable companies buying them from researchers. In some cases, these researchers can earn over £100,000 for discovering certain types of zero day. The economics of this type of market are really interesting because there's a much wider impact than the pure technology problem. So to recap, a zero day is a security problem in a computer program that hasn't been fixed yet and might lead to unintended consequences if exploited by an attacker. Brilliant. Thank you, David. And now we welcome Ben Evans from our drones team, and he's going to be talking to us about the phenomenon of digital twins. So a digital twin is a digital representation of a real life physical thing. So this could be anything from physical assets to people, places or systems. And this essentially bridges the digital and physical world with both theoretically being mirrored versions of one another at a single point in time. And this is enabled by sensors that are spread throughout the physical thing that collect data and seamlessly link back to the digital model. And this means that you can have a dynamic and changing model with lots of real-time and up-to-date information in it. So with all of these data sources, the digital twin allows you to view them all together and see how your system works as one. So for instance, let's imagine a digital twin of our office. 
sensors from a number of places in the building could feed into this twin and that could be anything from whether the lights are on or off to whether coffee machines are empty or bins are full and you could even start to monitor where people are in the building and to an extent we already have this with things like the sensors under our desks and they show whether or not the tables are being used on the digital floor maps that we have so this model could then be viewed and analysed by key stakeholders, such as building managers, enabling them to make more informed decisions and drive performance and efficiency improvements within the building. This also brings the ability to test potential future scenarios and assess how outcomes would differ with different inputs depending on what is going on in the building. Um, so this is all quite exciting because it gives us the chance to use digital twins to solve society's important problems. So, for instance, with A&E Logistics, um, using a digital twin and multiple IoT sensors could help us improve patient waiting times and performance against targets through greater insight into how a hospital works as an overall system. And this is something that has the potential to impact us all in our daily lives. Thank you, Ben. Now we turn to Dan Miles, a cyber infrastructure manager in PwC's risk assurance practice, who's going to be explaining APIs. So APIs, or application programming interfaces, are ways in which other people or other applications can interact with an application that is running. So if you take a database that you've got running and you wanted to get data out of it, you would use that database's API to interact with that database and get all of the information out of it. Um, we use APIs everywhere. They're, they're, they're surrounded by them. They're, they're running on your phone. They're running on the internet. When you interact with a web page, you're using the web pages APIs, the web browsers APIs to get there. So APIs have always been around us. We're surrounded by them. Um, and, and why they're useful? They, they, they're useful for, for exactly that reason. Everything that we've ever built in technology is, is built upon these APIs from the web browser that interfaces with um, the web pages to the GPS on your phone. Um, and, and what comes next is, is nobody knows. These keep evolving. They, it's more of a concept than it actually is a, a, an implementation of, of this technology. So what, what comes next is, is anybody's guess in terms of how we're building um, these, these interfaces. So if you're, you're trying to make your way home and you need to use a ride-sharing app, uh, you use the APIs uh, to get into your GPS services to actually get your location. You use other APIs to do the payment services to actually pay for, for that service. Um, and this is seamless, seamless application because all of the APIs are operating behind the scenes. You don't have to manually do any of that stuff. And that's really the power that APIs provide us. Really interesting. Thank you, Dan. Next up, we have some guests dialing in on the phones. So we're going to Rob McGregor, who is a senior manager in our cyber threat hunting team, who's going to explain the curious phrase, munge. Yes, munge, to manipulate or transform. The origin, in this use anyway, is probably Scottish, where it was in use in the 1940s to describe munching things up in a masquerade mess. In modern use, it means taking something and altering it, usually irreversibly, and usually also removing parts of it. There is an implication that the process is not really understood by the person describing it. So a real-world analogue might be how many folks explain turning a field of grass into bales of straw. It's a little bit vague, it's not obvious, and when you're finished, you're not getting that grass back, but you've got something valuable out of it. And munging is useful because you can start with an unstructured mountain of stuff, munge, turn that into a small amount of structured data that you can work with. 
it excites me because, well, you can work with structured data. And that's what comes next. You take that data, you can search it, feed it into other tools, cross-reference it, and otherwise gain value out of it. So, will it say this? Not by itself anyway. However, because munging can reduce and standardize the data, we can keep it and use it for longer than we could the original input. And because we've got less data, it's also going to require less energy to process it in the future too. So that all means that when the time comes that could help save us, maybe it'll still be around. Thank you, Rob. So munge is an old Scots term. I knew there was a reason why we went north of the border for that one. Next up, we have Ashley McGibbon from our New Ventures and Blockchain team, who's going to be breaking down distributed ledger technology. So in its simplest form, distributed ledgers are mechanisms for storing and sharing data between a number of participants. Essentially, it can be broken down into three main elements. Firstly, it's a ledger where transactions are recorded. Secondly, that ledger is shared among a network of participants. And thirdly, additions to the ledger are agreed by the model put in place by those participants. We have found that there's often a slight confusion over distributed ledger technology referred to as DLT and blockchain. Blockchain is a primary example of DLT, where DLT can be slightly more restrictive, for example, limiting access of transactions to only certain participants. Blockchain allows all of the participants in the network to see all of the transactions, so effectively ensuring full transparency. It's also worth debunking the notion that blockchain and Bitcoin are the same thing. Blockchain is the underlying platform that the Bitcoin network runs on. So Bitcoin was the first use of blockchain, similar to the way the car was the first use of the combustion engine. So blockchain can be useful in specific scenarios where there may be multiple parties that are both sharing and updating data, where there are intermediaries involved and where transactions interact with each other, they may require verification or maybe time sensitive. And there are a number of key benefits, including the fact that blockchain is decentralized, meaning there's no single point of failure. It can provide the opportunity to remove intermediaries that are adding complexity, and it can also help reduce cost, errors, and fraud. Blockchain has proven resilience, it provides transparency and it builds trust due to its open and tamper-proof nature. And DLT very much fits within the emerging tech space. And we've seen numerous different industries exploring how they could utilize it, from finance, education and healthcare to government, aviation and gaming. We're already seeing significant real-world implementations and we anticipate that DLT will become even more mainstream starting to be adopted across numerous industries for different use cases and the convergence of existing blockchain companies. Thank you, Ashling, particularly for those fundamental distinctions between DLT, blockchain and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Now, of course, we'd be a bit remiss if we didn't have an artificial intelligence term in this top 10. So up next, we have Shabnam Ratchi, a senior data scientist in PwC's AI team who's going to be talking to us about machine learning. I could define machine learning in this way, the type of algorithm that allows computer to learn from examples and learn from the data that we have and cramp its knowledge into computers. 
this is one of the most remarkable things happened after the industrial revolution and allows us to expound our cognitive abilities and our mental powers. In a very simple term, I can say these systems look at tons of data and come up with rules to predict outcomes for unseen data. It is useful because the whole goal is to develop machines that can behave as they were intelligent. And this kind of intelligent system is blessing, in my opinion, for humanity, assuming it does not result in negative side effects. Many of unpleasant jobs can be done faster, more accurate, and in a cheaper uh, way by machines. It excites me because uh, I like pushing boundaries of science and technologies to make our life easier. To addressing what comes next, algorithm and implementation led to further important conclusions about human reasoning functions and the future of AI is to understand better how human learning does work and provide new ideas that we could explore how our brain do things differently and incorporate in artificial neural networks models. Another important step would be considering the bias in learning algorithm for sensitive domains in, for example, decision-making, which may systematically discriminate against particular groups of people. In terms of what comes next and how useful it could be, future of AI could be anything, faster learning, more efficient data processing. In my view, future looks promising by implementation of machine learning solution, and we only need to adopt our businesses to handle these challenges very well. If I want to uh, distinguish machine learning versus AI, machine learning is learning which machine can learn by its own without being explicitly programmed. It is an application of AI and subcategory of artificial intelligence. And AI is more broader uh, term. And we are dealing with that from 100 years ago. And it's not something new. Thank you, Shabnam. The idea of automating away boring jobs sounds very seductive on one level, I suppose. Now, we're joined by some external guests. First up, we have Bronwyn Williams, who is a trends translator at Flux Trends, a South Africa-based trends forecasting consultancy, who's going to talk to us about the dark web. So what is the dark web? Well, the dark web is essentially a parallel internet or a hidden part of the web that is only accessible by a special sort of private and secure browser. So it's not something you could access from your normal browser that you regularly use on your computer or your phone. Rather, you would have to download something called the Tor or the Onion Router browser, which will essentially scramble your IP signal by jumbling it up with all the other IP addresses that are logged into this particular network. In this way, your location and identity remains entirely private and secure when you are browsing through one of these privacy optimized search engines. Of course, this means that the dark web did start out as being a place where people would log on to in order to conduct suspicious or perhaps criminal activities to do anything that they didn't want any prying eyes or any people to know that they were engaging in. But the technology is also useful for innocent consumers, particularly in a day and age where we are becoming more concerned about our personal privacy and how corporations and governments are using our data in ways that we might not necessarily approve of ourselves. In the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the Edward Snowden scandal that came out, these sort of events are starting to bring privacy and anonymity back into the forefront of discourse with everyday people. And the dark web using secure technology is secure, it is private, and it is much more difficult to censor than the web we know today. 
So going forward, what comes next for the dark web? Well, we believe that we really are in a tipping point where we're going to see more and more innocent, everyday people logging onto the internet through the dark web to maintain more control over their own privacy and security. Not only that, there is another trend going on at the world at the moment where we've seen totalitarian regimes and more dictatorial governments shutting down or clamping down on regular internet activity within their communities by bypassing the regular internet and going to browse the internet through the dark web citizens in these oppressed economies and markets are able to still continue to enjoy the benefits of the internet through the dark web so going forward we definitely think that the dark web is going to be a place where more and more of our regular everyday internet activity starts to take place Thank you, Bronwyn. And next up, we have Laura Ellis, the BBC's Head of Technology Forecasting, which sounds a great job title, who's going to talk to us through the phenomenon of deep fakes. So what is a deep fake? Well, the word comes from deep learning, which is a kind of machine learning, and fake, because often what deep fakes are is an attempt to convince us that what we're seeing or hearing is something other than what actually happened. So Deepfakes can be used to show somebody doing or saying something that they didn't do. It can place them somewhere where they haven't been, and it can do all kinds of other misleading things. It's been made possible by the fact that computers can be very clever and they can learn from each other how to build very realistic images and very realistic videos and also audio of people, which in the past hasn't been possible. And that's because of the development and advances in this thing called deep learning using neural networks. We hear about deepfakes a lot in fake news. Uh, We are very worried as a society when we look at, at that particular phenomenon, because when you can't believe the evidence of your eyes and ears, it's very difficult to tell stories and to do journalism and to convince people that uh, what we're doing is trying to reflect the world around them rather than trying to make stuff that influences that world. Uh, Deepfake detection has become a big thing with companies trying to work out how to use machines and also some human skills to to crack them and to see whether we can debunk deepfakes. Deepfakes will go on getting better and better and in the years to come we'll have to decide as a society how we tackle that and what we do about it. But in the meantime it's an area which can be used for good and we shouldn't forget that so deepfakes can be used to perhaps help somebody who doesn't speak a language be seen to speak that language and perhaps put some positive health messages for example in the way that David Beckham did about malaria. But I think on balance, uh, our narrative about deepfakes is that they are frightening and that they can be dangerous. And we'll have to decide as a society what we do about that. Thank you, Laura. Some big questions there. I guess what happens when one day you have an app on your phone that allows you to create a deepfake of anyone saying anything? It might be that we just don't know what to believe or that we just stop believing anything. Lastly, we're joined by Isabel Woodford from Sifted who's going to talk to us about a potentially revolutionary application of blockchain, Web 3.0. Hi there, I'm Isabel Woodford and I'm the fintech reporter for Sifted with the sister publication of the Financial Times and we cover European startups. Previously reporting crypto and blockchain uh, for a US news outlet called The Block and it was one hell of a year. Um, I want to explain a little bit about what Web 3.0 is, which is one of the things that I was covering during my time in crypto. So Web3 is basically 
the idea of remaking the internet. And Web3 would essentially remake that and decentralize it, if you like. And the maxim is that the internet is broken, um, that the power and data is controlled by a few powerful players and that it's overly censored. Um, And what Web3 wants to do is create a portal where nobody controls that data, nobody can censor it, and there are no middlemen. Um, So the way that they would do that really is blockchain. We don't need to go too far into that, but that's the underlying tech behind building a decentralized internet. So you would be able to pay, browse, message anyone, anywhere on a seamless portal that nobody owns or controls in theory. So as you may have been able to guess, this is still very much in development and it's very, very nascent stages. There's a massive amount of investment going into this and a massive amount of developers working on it. So why is Web3 useful? The real question is really how could it be useful? As I've said, it's not really proven yet and adoption will be a massive question. It's still very much in doubt. I think it will require some sort of uh, apocalyptic data breach or something of the like where people suddenly tune into uh, the the data, lack of data privacy that, that we currently have. So if you're anti-big tech and a big advocate of data privacy, this should be very exciting for you. Um, in theory, in the future, we could have app stores, cloud storage and search engines that are owned by a community and, and maybe even you who would vote by tokens. And that would be the way that we govern instead of uh, large tech companies. Uh, in its best iteration, then, this could offer a very different internet structure and data ownership paradigm. The cynic in me says we already have browsers like Opera, which reduce cookies. And I ask, do we really need the rest? Or perhaps it's just that my imagination doesn't go far enough. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you so much to all of our guests for joining us and for these insights. And listeners, as always, thank you so much for joining us too. If you have any comments or feedback, then Hugo and I are both on Twitter at HugoWarner1 and at LouTagTech. And please rate, review and subscribe. In our next episode, K for Kids, we'll be looking at how we can protect, teach and inspire children in the digital age.